what Carl Friston's free energy principle is. Built into someone who's brought up in physics background is that everything wants to find a place of rest. It's called homeostasis. What Carl Friston's model is about is living things do experiments with the environment to try to determine how do I continue to be a living thing. Sort of uh, came at this kind of approach indirectly. Uh, and actually started working in the area of adaptive learning, uh, you know, sometime before the free energy principle kind of came out. And, uh, and then when I became aware of Carl Friston's work, it fits so much with um, what I was interested in that I kind of jumped on board, so yeah. And could you talk about what is adaptive learning? So uh, it's, if you think, the very, the, here, here's the difference. If you think about whatever you hear about AI today, you take a big mess of data, and then this is how the large language models were, were generated, and then you train it to uh, give it inputs, train it to do the outputs that are then you know, trained to be acceptable in the case of uh, ChatGPT, uh, you want it to be trained to generate useful outputs as judged by humans. And that's kind of how ChatGPT was trained. Uh, and then you kind of kind of do that approach. Uh, that's a bulk learning approach, right? It's running it over and over and over again. And then once the model is trained, it's deployed. Adaptive learning is one where I take one little step and I learn something from it. And I just update a model. And it's a different kind of model. Um, it's uh, something called a hidden Markov model, but it, what it does, it just says, well, what do I know so far? I, have a, I, I, can, I think I could make a prediction of what's going to happen next. And just a little bit of data, make a prediction from that data. Then you make that prediction from that data and you see if it's right, right? And then, so you're, you're building little step at a time and it's building a, and it's what's called a partially observable model because you're learning a little bit as you go, a little bit as you go. And um, that's what we mean by adaptive learning. It, it, it adapts each step uh, as opposed to you know, kind of a bigger, long learning process. Um, and of course, it, that approach fits a bit. I mean, I got experience with this in just in how can you learn from a group of people what they all would say in answer to a question, most likely. I mean, we, you know, initially I started working with this. One of the early use cases was, uh, feedback on NBC Saturday Night Live. What did you think of the host? And you could ask that of, you know, quarter of a million people or whatever, and you would get the top ranked things of what they said. Well, that's an adaptive learning process. The way that system worked is it would listen to what you said, and then it would sample what you said with other people. You know, but a sampling process, just finding out, think of it like a Darwinian idea, the 
ideas that were rising in popularity were sampled more frequently than those that weren't. And so what bubbles to the top is the thing that's most likely a predictive answer from that group. What's interesting with that survey is you, each person is a temporal stack. So you'd have perhaps a 70 person with different hosts over the decades having a different interpretation of what that host means now and someone who's perhaps a teenager who that's a fresh host and that's kind of locked into what a host is. So there's a flattening of that in the, in the group as well, which is interesting. Well, it also, it gives you a way of getting what the initial impression is or, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, and then we did some work in television early on. So one of the other things we would say for the weakest link, the hostess of the weakest link, what can she do to improve the way she interacts with people? And, uh, and that was actually used to give her feedback as to how to relate to the audience uh, in, a, you know, in, a, in a better way. So... So you can see that. So it was a, that was the beginning of adaptive learning. But at that point, we did not understand, uh, you know, kind of the depth of the NEAI model there. The, at that time, this we started about 20 some years ago. Um, and uh, we did not have the natural language processing technology that we have today. So in around 2016, when we started working on CrowdSmart, actually the company was started in 2015, um, this is when the uh, large language model technology was beginning to emerge, where you could create vector databases of language. So you could translate a whole sentence or a set of words into something that you could compute with. You could say, oh, these words are different from each other. Or you could do things like uh, do algebra with words. You could say king minus male equals queen, right? So that was the beginning of calculating with meaning. And uh, so then what we were able to do is as we listen to people say, what would you answer this question? We can now digest what they have to say and then show them what other people think, but different from what they said. Now we have a way of sampling that and then beginning to remember how their beliefs change over time as they're talking to other people. That's adaptively learning uh, how a group is forming an opinion or forming uh, a plan or how they would solve a problem or co-create something. So that's when we, so that was going down that path when I happened to, and I was thinking, uh, you know, the brain, or like human beings, essentially, though they, this sounds kind of, kind of crazy, but we do science all the time, right? We, we believe we know something, but then we encounter evidence that might change our minds, and then we try to create a new prediction that'll work. Um, and so that idea of, of measuring and predicting is fundamentally what we mean by doing science. Well, it turns out when you bring a group of people together to say, do you think this product will succeed in the market? They're going to now be tapping into their, their prediction about what they think makes a product work. And so you tap in 
to that thinking. And that was uh, around that time I came into the work that Friston was doing and saying, well, no, this actually ties into an intelligence model of how the brain works and that the brain is a predictive engine and that we don't listen very well because what we do is we, we predict what we think we're going to sense, but then we get evidence and we decide how to react to the evidence. Yeah. And to what extent is that conscious or unconscious? How much are you emotionally compromised? What I'm wondering with the scientific method is if properly trained, perhaps the computers can do it better because even our best scientists still have an emotional cortex before they even have a scientific thought, correct? Well, that's kind of, that is what, get the, the, thank you for bringing that up because that's what got me when I, uh, I think this is when I was, uh, uh, my, one of my first times to speak to the Boston Global Forum was last April. And one of the things I said is now that we can broaden this notion of what doing science is to include our beliefs, our emotions, uh, it, it taps more into all of human history. You know, how it's not so much, you know, doing science uh, probably got overly constrained when we said, no, it's only what you can measure and be precise about, as opposed to this is a process that human beings, particularly collaborating together, um, what causes us to cooperate is if we have shared beliefs about what will work or what won't work. And so the whole nature of what we wanted to build with CrowdSmart is learn how do people, how can people more effectively co-create together or solve problems together by, you know, just tapping into what they believe will work or not work. So sometimes we call that tacit knowledge, knowledge gained by experience. And so we don't really think of it as science, but in a kind of a simple way, you know, we have things that we think, no, I know what works. And it may be based on something that we later on find out not to be true. Uh, but nonetheless, that's how we update because our, and then so the healthy brain, the healthy person is open to listening and adapting and learning. Um, an issue we have going on, not just in the United States right now, uh, but throughout the globe, people form fear-based beliefs about something and they stop listening and they don't trust. And that's not a very good place to be um, because if we stop listening and we just sort of go into our silos, uh, that that's just not, you know, the way human society was meant to work. And so, uh, you know, that's this initiative around, you know, creating kind of a new AI architecture that recognizes more of how the brain works, how intelligence works, uh, how it works within nature, because it's constantly communicating and testing, communicating and testing. So we think an AI shouldn't be a separate construct like a chat GPT, which isn't connected to reality in a sense. It just, it's generating bits of text that we recognize as okay, but it in of itself is only looking for, it doesn't have any internal model of who it is or what it is.
no matter what people say, it's simply a thing that's transforming input text to output text and just doing it based on reducing the error rate. And, and we're collaborating and, with it because it's using a language that looks like our language. So we're actually yeah. filling in some of the gaps unknowingly, perhaps. That's really interesting what you bring up about the large language models. And I saw this uh, conference where another uh, pioneer in AI was talking about in the current computing like models, you could choose either accuracy, such as Google search, or you could choose creativity, such as ChatGPT, but you couldn't choose both. However, the human mind, being of nature, has the corpus callosum that connects the left brain to the right brain. So in a sense, we're seeing both the quantum energy, the quantum mechanics, and the, grand, uh, the um, general rule of relativity. And Einstein was racking his head trying to figure out like how to unify these. And it's interesting that you have these contradictions in nature that we're, we're, we've evolved into and our mind is- evolved. That's right, that's right. So paradox can be a, a, a good thing um, in terms of how it helps us to, uh, to learn. Uh, and so, um, you know, you, uh, you see in, uh, I don't know if you saw the film Oppenheimer, but, uh, but what he talks about, first when he's bringing quantum mechanics to the United States, he says, well, it's, it's, it's both, it's a paradox. And so it's thinking about that, that then opens up our minds to a new way of looking at things. And, and so, uh, yes, I mean, that is, that's what, you know, that's what makes, um, again, this framework we're talking about of going to first principles or understanding how intelligence works uh, it's far more complex than just this, you know, input, output, input, output. We need to tap into that greater complexity in developing a, uh, you know, a sense of intelligence going forward and creating something that, I mean, everything interacts, right? So, um, again, we drop these, you know, like an artificial intelligence, if it's separate, we're not really having it be self-aware of its impact on the environment. But when we bring it into something like the free energy principle, we're talking about cause and effect or impact on the environment. So that we have an impact on the environment that may change the way we relate to the environment. So you can think for all living systems to do that, um, you kind of have built in sense of self-governance. So the idea is to build these systems that will be respectful of the environment that they're interacting with. And I could see that iterating as it goes, because as you interact with it, you upgrade your model and you're more aware of how you're touching it and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's fascinating. In an ideal world, if we uh, had lived that way, we wouldn't have global warming because we would have, we would have uh, our, our systems that would tell us the decision we're making there had an impact on the environment that was not sustainable. So you think of that in the free energy principle model, it simply says you're choosing a pathway that will lead to your extermination. And so that's not consistent with a living system. A living system seeks to find a pathway forward that is sustainable and actually grows in complexity. Um, so again, uh, coming back to why <laughs> looking at AI this way, if we're going to empower 
computational intelligence. Let's empower it with the knowledge we have of how physics works, how biology works, so that it operates in uh, coordination with evolutionary principles, biological principles, etc. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Sometimes I wonder in the micro when there's like a regret or a mistake or an error, it seems like, oh, I wish that wasn't there, that blot. But in the macro, it was essential because I gave you the framework to then look at the problem in a new light. And sometimes that gets to the next area. So earlier in this conversation, you mentioned how you need to upgrade your thinking like it's no longer accurate. And there's a temporal nature to that where maybe it was accurate for a time and that was necessary to create that step to get you to where you need to evolve into the next phase. Well, in fact, if you, I, I know, uh, well, you know, the, the, this, the concept that Michael Levin mentions is all intelligence is composite. It was even this conversation will change, you know, both of us in terms of what we know, right? And so, so we, we will adapt, we adapt and learn through every kind of uh, interaction we either do with other humans or with nature or whatever. And so this notion, uh, notion of living adaptive learning is much more reflective on, you know, how we actually do uh, work together as sort of uh, sentient agents in this uh, environment. It's interesting going back to the paradox, how by letting go is the only way to grow. Uh, once you try to hold something, you wind up losing it. So you think of uh, insular culture, like in history, many countries have, have uh, closed their borders and they wind up trying to protect. Uh, it's an understandable uh, kind of response, but yet you wind up losing in so many ways. So you, like you hold an open hand holds more water than a closed hand. And it's it's interesting too with what you mentioned about having a fear-based uh, like learning style, like, oh no, I'm you know, speaking to a, a renowned professor, I don't want to look like an idiot. But if I'm worried, I don't learn. I have to just basically empty myself, expose myself, learn and adapt. I say something that's wrong, you correct me, I upgrade that. And then hopefully the other people I speak to, we all collectively are lifted up. Whereas if I close down and, and try to present something as, as perfect and whole and, you know, un, un, incapable of upgrading, then I, that's actually like death in a sense. Does that make sense? That's a very good point. Uh, that is a, uh, so, um, the, what you brought up another issue is we have to think of identity, the way it propagates, the way we treat identity is in a different space or a different way of thinking, complementary to the way we learn knowledge. Let me be clear about that. One of the reasons the scientific process opens up to knowledge learning as a different way of learning is because you have to strip away the identity. What you want to be able to reward is anyone, anywhere, if they make a scientific discovery, it's still valid, right? If it's reproducible, if it's supports by the evidence, if the predictions are right, it's true. And because if we hadn't done that, we probably would not have uh, the contributions of Albert Einstein. Because at the time he wrote those papers in 1905, his identity 
was not one associated with an authority and knowledge, right? He was a guy in the patent office who, you know, basically wrote three papers that changed everything, uh, quantum mechanics and relativity and yada, yada. So it's, it's, it was, but that is an example of, uh, so here's, here's the thing we should observe. Identity is conservative. Uh, only certain, in other words, it is, in other words, you try to preserve it by not sharing your beliefs necessarily. If it, you only want whatever you say to be reinforcing of whatever your identity has given you. So if you're known as a, uh, you know, uh, you know, well, particularly in politics, if you're known to be part of this uh, orientation or party, you're going to reinforce that very carefully and you're going to be careful about what you share. However, if you flip on the knowledge sharing side, you may have uh, shared beliefs, shared all kinds of other things that you can share with others. And for this reason, uh, in the design of what we did and what we're looking at in this new AI architecture is when we're doing knowledge acquisition, we want to have people mask their identity so that they're free to share. And then you can flip it around and say, oh, look at here. It's, uh, it turns out, by the way, if you look at values between Democrats and Republicans, they share the same values. They care. They all care about family. They all care. You know, there's all the same values are there. There's like one that's different, which is, I think there's, it, it, they have one side has integrity, the other side has compassion. You can guess which is which. Um, but the point is, is that in general, there's complete alignment. So why all the fighting? And it's because we are very careful. Oh, no, no. What I mean about what's best for family is, uh, you know, culture wars. You know, I may believe the best thing for my family is culture wars. Somebody else might say the best thing for my family is so they can learn diversity. They can learn, you know, what it's, you know, I don't want them to, be, you know, you see what I'm saying is that it's how it's expressed uh, that where we can learn and discover common ground. So anyway, that's just, I mean, that, so you pointed out something that in how we learn, it's, it's not just simply the learning mechanism, but how we share information. Yeah, really good points. Um, could you describe to a lay person what Carl Friston's free energy principle is? Yes, I hope so. Um, so I know because it, it taps, I mean, this before I get into that, it taps deeply into my background in that I worked in free energy modeling in thin films in physics. So built into someone who's brought up in physics background is that everything wants to find a place of rest. It's called homeostasis or whatever. So that makes total sense, right? Things want to find a place of rest. Um, and so what Carl Friston's model is about is to say, let's just look, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really is a first principle because it's a tautology. Living things do experiments with the environment to try to determine how do I continue to be a living thing? And so 
if you uh, want to say this to a layperson, it's like whatever you are doing in the course of a day, you're trying to learn how that you make your existence be less uncertain, more positive, more, you know. So it goes as simple as if you're taught not to jaywalk or whatever, that might, or even when you do it, you're aware of the fact I'm living in a place of higher uncertainty than if I go in the crosswalk. So what our brains are built to do is we recognize from our senses when we're in danger or we're, whether we're better off. And so what the Friston model of the, of the brain is simply saying that we are constantly trying to find a path forward that increases our likelihood of being who we are. And it's very simple. Um, and so the way it works is our brains sense something and then we decide how to act on what we sense. Do we change our beliefs or do we look for more evidence to support our beliefs? So let me give you a very simple example to way to apply the free energy principle when you're walking down the street. At a distance, you think you see somebody that may be your friend. Now you've generated a belief, that may be my friend, all right? Now I have a choice. I, can, I, I, I have a, a to, to validate that belief, I may want better evidence. So as I walk towards that person, I'm hoping to get more evidence of confirming that hypothesis or dismissing it. And if, hopefully I don't raise my hand too high or too quickly, because then I might confuse the other person. But that we've all been through that experience where that's an example of we're trying to preserve a, a sense of uncertainty about an action we're about to take. So there's, there's two actions that come out of that. We walk by that person and we say, hey, we say, hello, it is that person. Or we suddenly realize, made a mistake, and we move on, right? So that's an, that's an active inference process where we think we believe, we measure, and we then continue to make actions on that. And you can apply that at any level, uh, cellular level, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, some, uh, an item seeking food. I mean, just understanding what are the pathways to get food. You can apply it at an organizational level. We did this in the way we built out the initially tested CrowdSmart. Can a group of diverse people predict the survival of a startup? By listening to the team, by using their knowledge. So think of this as the collective brain of angel investors and technologists building a predictive model of what it takes for this startup to stay alive. Well, of course, it's about getting more money, right? So what are the either revenue or investment that they get to stay alive? That's their belief state. That organization's belief state is we need money and we can get it through sales or investment. And there are various strategies for doing that. And so then we collectively give a probability given this plan policy, is that going to work or not? And believe me, we did this with about uh, 70 to 100 different companies, and we were able to show that about 85% a group can predict the survivability of a startup. And of course, we didn't do the ongoing governance, but it, it works at a predictive level. And so, and it's a time frame. Yeah. 
What's the time frame that you use to determine whether the startup was successful? Okay. Four years. So we had. So the measure was if a startup is only raising a million dollars, and that's what we use as a sort of a a, a rubric. Uh, they're going to need more money in 18 months, more than likely. I mean, in other words, that's, so we, so therefore we could say, what was their probability? And that's generally viewed by the way, seed to follow on is run, run roughly 18 month metric. And so the question was after 18 months, did they or did they not get additional funding? And, you know, under good circumstances, obviously. So that is, and so that then, so you actually have then ground truth, to see if the prediction turned out to be true. So you literally measured it exists now. Does it exist 18 months from that? You know, and does it look appear as if it's healthy? I think more than even though we started that process in 2016, I think now more than 70% of those companies that we invested in are still alive through COVID. So it, you know, it, it, um, well, you know, so that's when we decided that this is a kind of general purpose technology we put into an architecture. And now it appears that that architecture probably is a good core architecture for doing a collaborative AI that, you know, allows people to work and think together. Amazing. Congratulations, first of all. And second of all, how did you go about creating this? Because this is before ChatGPT or anything like that was on the scene for public domain. Did you create it from the ground up? Because I'm I'm a crazy man. I'm joking a little bit, but uh, no, I've I've been known to. You have to understand that in 1982, I came to California uh, to join up with some Stanford professors to apply AI to genetic engineering. So I've been known to go a little bit early sometimes. <laughs> so, no, but what happened, so that company, though, ended up, um, and I'm, I'm mentioning it because that company ended up going public, uh, was one of the biggest companies of the symbolic era, the AI, and it was all about how do we figure out how human decision makers, expert systems, I don't know if, you're, if you can read about it, I mean, it was... It, they were because what you would do is you take the tacit knowledge of humans and put it into various rules and procedures and they could perform like experts in things like configuring, com configuring complex systems or, uh, I mean, believe it or not, uh, we were behind making uh, inventory management more complex because when we started back in the mid eighties, every airline ticket was priced the same. If you were going from here to San Francisco to New York, it was a fixed price. It wasn't inventory driven. And, and, and so what, and they would try to do it a little bit with human experts would try to look at the, you know, is the plane loaded or not? And what we found out is we could put in a set of rules that were dependent on where the inventory is and all that. And sadly, uh, me and my team were behind why we all, you may, the guy next to you may pay a fraction of what you paid for your ticket simply because, yeah, you know the answer. So, I mean, the point was, though, that's an example of an expert system, right? It was tacit knowledge codified to create an expert system. So the reason I'm, I'm telling you that is what made me, I've always been obsessed with the idea of how can we learn how can we use the internet to learn our collective intelligence? 
And so um, that's what I started out to do is can you apply collective intelligence to investing? And I work with uh, the leaders in collective intelligence like Scott Page from University of Michigan to a, a lesser degree, Tom Malone at MIT and Philip Tetlock. But I, I looked at a lot of their work, but Scott actually worked with me directly in, in putting this together. So <clears throat> I began looking at how collective intelligence experiments work and started to look at, can we write software to do that? And I came upon, and I was doing this, you know, myself and a very small team of like two or three other people. And I am a coder, so I decided to look at Bayesian Belief Networks as a way to codify tacit knowledge, causal knowledge, looking at the work of Judea Pearl. And, um, and so began to build that out of saying, what do we have to learn as well? We have to learn when someone says the team is great, like say they give a team of that's running a startup, give them an eight. I want to know all your reasons why. What, what are you thinking? Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Why do you say that? And then what we would do is say, well, here's all of Tom's reasons why, but we don't say it's Tom. We say, does anybody else agree with those same reasons? And we sample them using Bayesian sampling. And so eventually what we learned was we could learn what do people think is relevant knowledge that leads to that predictive score. It's a causal model of why we think, why this group believes that that team will perform well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, yeah, so it's only in the this is a Kahneman reframing issue. Turns out that we would have the startups present to the group, so there everybody knew each other's identity. I mean, they would know that it's a female team, for example, that led the company. However. When they were in the evaluation process, they didn't see each other's identity. And that alone, guess what happened? We ended up investing in 42% plus of the companies were run by women or minorities, something unheard of with VCs. But we just by shifting the mind, this is what Daniel Kahneman said, you can just do frame shifting that you can say, okay, right now we're just gonna look at the evidence. And that's all it was, but then in the back end, we would know their experience, were they an experienced investor, uh, in what categories, uh, so we, we, could, uh, we could marry that. And we'd also be, one of the things that system would detect is whose knowledge was most influential in driving the scoring. And it was usually ranked. And, and so uh, I could look, does that make sense? So I'll give you an example. We did a company uh, scored a company that 
uh, came out of Stanford, Stardex. Uh, it was a group of women who were creating a, uh, a drug for enhancing female sexual performance post-menopause, which is an issue of, you know, a lot of it's hormone replacement therapy, but that also has risks with it, et cetera. Uh, and so they were looking for, is this, you know, this is a, a, a good alternative to hormone replacement therapy. Therapy. Well, it turns out the person that showed up as uh, the top knowledgeable person was someone out of a guy out of Brazil. And my initial response was, that doesn't look right. But guess what? He was a deep researcher in hormone replacement therapy, very respected, <clears throat> and he knew what he was talking about. So therefore, even though it was single blind, it identified someone who was very knowledgeable. And I, I saw that over and over again. So we've done a lot of cross-validation on, you know, what is, I mean, this is the difference between collective intelligence and wisdom of the crowds. It's a very, because you know, one, you are knowing, you know, what is the background, et cetera, of that individual, kind of like with scientific discovery. You know that person's track record. I mean, even though that shouldn't necessarily influence, it's important information. Someone may do it great for the first time, like Einstein, but maybe others that do not. So you have all that background information you can cross-check if you want. Fascinating. I dabbled a little bit with data science just online uh, through uh, Coursera and edX, and there was a project we were working on that was Netflix's challenge back in the the 2007 to 2009 era, I believe, where they uh, put out this million dollar challenge to anyone who would take it on to develop a better way of uh, recommending, like the recommender model that Netflix wound up using to recommend, like if you like this movie, you would, might like these movies. And that was my first uh, um, like kind of interaction with a sparse matrix. And that blew my mind that from maybe like 10% or something of information, you could fill out to a certain uh, confidence level, the rest of the matrix. Is that something that you work on? Yes. Well, no, it, it, it turns out that this kind of stuff we're doing is very much sparse matrix, right? That, that you know, you are, you know, your recommendation is closely married to what I just said, very closely. So if I know, if I can predict what, a, if, a group, if I have a group that predicts an outcome, I now have a knowledge model that can predict. So for example, let's just take your case. If I were, um, you know, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I could probably come up with getting a group of Netflix viewers together and say, what, uh, what most likely causes you uh, to select a film? You know, and maybe we learn from that a new causal model for generation for, for generated recommendations, we can turn that model around and have it generate recommendations. So they're very closely related. And yes, it, this all is about uh, carefully managing the context of sparse matrix data so that you can make accurate predictions. Okay. And right now we're talking largely about large language models. And I hear rumors, whispers that there's something new likely coming in two to three years. Do you have any thoughts or insights or predictions on what we might see after the large language models? 
Yeah, I really think that, in fact, we're trying to be that. Uh, and, and I mean, the work we're doing with John Clippinger and the call with Chris Fields, uh, et cetera, I think this first principles AI is that because I think it's come, and this is very bold, but I think it's come to a time where we have to stop calling it artificial intelligence. And the science of learning intelligence is the science of knowledge discovery. And so what we want to do is say first principles is it's got to be something that's an adaptive learning thing. And first principles, it's got to be something that links cause to effect on the environment. And you, you get where that's going. And it turns out that uh, all of the data learning that constitutes all of machine learning, neural networks, large language models, is really one thing in physics. It's the uh, the, the, the learning model of the spin system, how microscopic things align. And, and so that, you know, you can take all of that and say, okay, that fits into a box. And that's where in this architecture, where I've called it like a content addressable memory, because what that really does is says, okay, they've got a lot of text out there that think of that as like a big encyclopedia. And that's kind of how you use chat GPT, right? If you ask it the right questions, it'll give you the right answers, but it's more like a, a calculator with encyclopedic knowledge. And so now just say, oh, okay, that fits. Now, now let's go on and build a new kind of learning agent that has that as a memory. And then you have, so yeah, I think this adaptive learning, emergent, inside out, everything growing in complexity that's consistent with physics, uh, computational biology. Uh, and and I, I don't think that the current computational architecture of active inference is going to get us there, but I think we'll, we'll find an architecture that will get us there and it will look a lot like, I mean, one of the uh, key principles of this first principles, new architecture is going to be, I think the free energy principle. I, right now I'm thinking there's probably, I mean, we're on the call, right? Where we're talking about uh, agent, the notion of agency for any learner, whether it's at the cellular level or at the corporate level or the global level, the national level, doesn't matter. There's a sense of agent. And so what is the agent? Well, in the case of a team within a company, that agent may be a group of people, you know, contained in now that wants to propose something to the organization. So this notion of agent interface and environment, I think that architecture scales from the microscopic level, the whole way up to the nation level or na you know, nation state level or whatever. Uh, I think it actually is a scalable model of intelligent behavior because it includes interacting human intelligence intelligences with uh, artificial agent intelligences. Yeah. You are the CEO of crowdsmart.ai. No. What are I am the no, chief scientist. Okay. Apologies. The chief scientist. No, no, I'm I'm joking with you on that because I joke with my friends that the worst thing that happened to me is I got suckered into being a CEO 
back when I was in my 30s. And it turns out I have much more joy in working with and creating technology than I do of running. I ran two public companies. And, uh, and of course, I would bring in a team of people around me that helped me with that. But after all, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have a PhD in applied physics. I did field linguistics. I'm not your uh, business CEO type. So anyway, I just, <laughs> I mean, I ended up, I ended up getting that role. I ended up taking two companies public, but it's not my, uh, my greatest joy. Well, and what you're doing is really fascinating with putting together a model to determine the reliability or the, the likelihood of a startup succeeding. And I'm curious, what, what are you looking to do in the future with CrowdSmart AI? I think we're, this is where we're talking about um, really seeing how we can roll this out to be common ground for the common good. It really, we may, we are likely to think about if, if we have the resources available, uh, making CrowdSmart part, part of this bigger entity called, called Common Good AI. Initially, we're doing it as a nonprofit, but uh, the idea that if this architecture, open up the architecture so that other people can use the API, uh, they can extend some of the uh, learning algorithms, uh, because it appears to be uh, and we have, we're still testing that, but it appears to be a scalable architecture that could have broader utility. And that's where I'm you know, working with uh, Clippinger and, and others on that. So that's where we would see it going is, how can this impact democracy? I mean, it's come up over and over again that I, I don't know how many people have come to me and said this could save the future of humanity, you know, getting people to come to common ground for the common good. I mean, that, so it's, it's kind of built and it's the opposite of social media. And so that's a, that's a dream and, and a, hopefully a possibility. David Silverswag uh, at Boston Global Forum uh, came up to me after that talk I gave last April and just said that. He said, we got to work together on this. And so I'm hoping we can take this into uh, this notion of a, uh, a, a center for brain science and uh, AI and uh, and pro-social behavior on a global basis. And uh, so we're looking to, and you know, last week I was, was last week here, week before I was in, had dinner with uh, Silver Swag and, and John Clippinger, and we we're talking about just that idea. And also then collaborating with a number of universities on that. And so far, it's been a lot around the Boston area, Boston Global Forum. Are you based in, the, in Boston? or I'm in Vancouver, Canada, but I go to Boston okay. and San Francisco on occasion. So I love Vancouver. Fun. I love San Francisco. 